Well, believe it or not, this is our seventh weekend where we have not been physically meeting together. But who's counting, right? Seven weekends. It's unbelievable. Um, and I do hate to count. I hope this is over in a timely manner. And we'll get to some of that as we deal with uh, the plan to plan. And there's a lot of variables on that. We'll talk about it later. But for this weekend and the discussion questions we provided for you, uh, we're going to deal with a topic that I think is a unique temptation during this shutdown. And I want to uh, address it head on. This sermon is not intended uh, to uh, offend anyone, obviously. I, I hope you know that. Um, I am trying to address things that I think are a particular need in our church as we work through these uh, sermons. And so, um, anyway, I want to I, I prayerfully come to this conclusion and I want to uh, deal with a variety of passages. So get your Bibles out. We're going to get into those things, uh, those verses and those passages. But first, I want to spend some time uh, praying. So let's pray together. Then we'll get into uh, the Word of God and a message I hope will uh, safeguard our lives, if not maybe readjust and, and uh, give you some mid-course corrections in this uh, seventh weekend of our shutdown. So uh, pray with me. God, first we want to uh, confess our sins. We want to think about the uh, need that we have as uh, a corporate entity, as a church, I guess we can think beyond that, starting with just our desire to see your grace upon our country. And uh, since this is a global pandemic, we pray, God, that you would give grace to our world right now. Um, thank you, God, in your mercy. This has been less of a, uh, a plague upon us than we thought it could be, at least that we, many people projected that it would be more grateful for that as we have prayed very specifically as a church for protection among our people. We are very, very grateful for the way that you've curtailed this uh, among our church. And I know that's not the case for every church. And I, uh, I just would pray for every Christian church out there that's dealing with this in a greater way than we are. Uh, pray that you would give them all that they need, that their leaders would be protected, that they might serve their church as well. And we pray for our church, God that uh, we could have a healthy, thriving church in the midst of this shutdown. God, we ask for your grace in things that we need to correct in our lives. And as we think about something in this sermon that uh, a bit more of a forthright look in our own hearts to make sure that we don't stumble in these areas, I pray that you'd give us grace to hear. Um, I know that there's so many passages of Scripture that you have given us that remind us as to the challenge of listening and how we are to listen. And I pray that, um, uh, not that this is intended to be a harsh rebuke, God, as you know my heart, but as the Bible says, if you rebuke a wise man, he'll be still wiser. So I pray for our church as we think through uh, some things that may be easy to fall into during this lockdown that you would give us um, just the right kind of protections that we need spiritually. God, thanks for our team, our church, our leaders. Thanks for uh, Joseph and Keith and our worship leaders have just so talented, have brought us uh, good tools to worship. We thank you for our pastoral team and their hard work during this time. We thank you for every family and every individual that is in our church participating as they ought to in small groups and uh, their Zoom meetings, their electronic communications that take place. Continue to spur us on to do that and to do it even better. 
uh, as we continue through this uh, very unique time in our lives. So God, help us now to have ears to hear. Give me clarity of mind and clear articulation in my voice as we work through this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have uh, decided to preach a sermon from a variety of texts. So grab your devices, your Bibles. Uh, we want to get around in the Word of God, which, by the way, if you have a device um, and you haven't gotten your software up to speed, um, there's a lot of ways to access the Bible. It just give you some insight into my life. Of course, I use Logos Bible software all the time. It's a great tool on my laptop if you're watching on, on, on um video and you've got a laptop open, that's a great, great way to get around in the text, to use those notes and take notes in the note-taking feature. And uh, if you're on an iPad or on your phone, I love Olive Tree software, uh, which is just a small investment, just a few of their resources, uh, their study Bible, their ESV text. Uh, it's well worth it. It's a very nimble and lean and mean kind of program that um, not quite as cumbersome as some of the things in, in Logos Bible software. So um, use those tools. They're great tools. I think of the Apostle Paul and John and Peter were here today. They would certainly be utilizing those kinds of things. And so, uh, or if you just got your old-fashioned Bible and a notepad, uh, let's get a few things down. The title of this message this weekend, I've entitled the sermon, You Were Not Made to Idle. You Were Not Made to Idle. And uh, I use that as a verb, the word idle in that sentence. Uh, knowing that my spiritual forefathers who preached in church history loved, in the English language at least, they loved that word idle as a um, description, a noun. Um, I shouldn't say a description, but it was a way to label people who were, as your dictionary would say, when it refers to people, idle, people that are um, aversion, they have an aversion to work. They uh, choose to um, take the easy road. They are, um, one of the synonyms in the dictionary you'll find is, is to be lazy. Now, I'm using it as a verb in that title, as you've noticed. Uh, you were not made to idle. Uh, as it says in your dictionary, as it relates to engines, uh, I just jotted it down with such a good definition. Uh, it said of an engine, uh, what does it mean to idle? It means to run slowly while disconnected from a load or being out of gear. And I just thought that was a great way to put it in that many of us during this lockdown, uh, this shutdown, your work perhaps is shut down, uh, things are curtailed. I know many of our staff members, depending on their role, um, things have slowed down for them. And uh, I know a lot of people I stay in contact with throughout our church, their work schedule is not what it used to be. And they clearly are running slowly in their daily lives. Um, their responsibilities have changed. Obviously, a lot of uh, things going on in their personal lives and their family lives, if they have a, a family that they live under the same roof with. But they're disconnected from the load that they generally uh, pull in their daily lives. And uh, I know that's not the case for everyone. You might be listening and saying, I'm working now harder than I ever worked before the shutdown. You know, two months ago, uh, things were easier. Now it's different and harder and overtime. And I know we got a lot of first responders and a lot of people that uh, are involved in in all kinds of things where you're working harder. But for many, and, and I would say most, we've got a different kind of schedule, uh, certainly with our schools shut down, where people are, um, as that definition reads, they're disconnected from the daily load of their lives. So just for illustrative sake, I'd like to uh, play off that word if the old time preachers talking about the idle or those who like to avoid work and the lazy and say, well, here is a special and unique temptation in the midst of this COVID-19 uh, shutdown where I don't want to misunderstand the 
gift of work. And I'd like to start that way. And I know you want me to announce how many points I have in this sermon, right? And uh, just for the sake of the way that I'm doing these messages, uh, more of them have more points than we're used to. But I got eight points today, so leave enough room there as you're taking notes. I got eight points and their uh, observations about work in Scripture. And let me just start with this one. Number one, if you're taking notes, uh, work is a gift. Jot that down. Work is a gift. Um, that's a hard one, I think, for us to consider. It's one of those things you might say, well, I hope it came with a gift receipt because I'd like to return it. But I need you to think biblically. If you're taking notes, jot down Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is prior to the fall. Remember, the fall takes place in Genesis 3. Here's Genesis 2. Uh, Yahweh, uh, the Lord God, uh, it says, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Um, there was raw material, obviously, in this garden, and this is more than just a guy kind of arranging flowers. I want you to think of it more like a person who's got this canvas of, of resources, and he was given dominion uh, along with his wife to exercise leadership and administration over these things to fashion them and work them and, and subdue them to be useful. And there are so many things to create and so many things to harness and so many things to manipulate in the creation to use it for good. And that's what they were tasked to do, to work. So work was a gift. It's a pre-fall gift. It's, it's a virtue. Engaging in it is a biblical virtue. Now look across the page or scroll down if you're taking notes and you got your Bibles open here. Genesis 3, now look at verse 17. Uh, yes, it was a pre-fall gift of virtue, something that we will be doing in eternity, by the way. We could get to that another time as it's referenced in the book of Revelation, but um, the fall complicated it. Genesis 3:17. And Adam, and to Adam, God now, this is the, what we call the curse, is where God brings consequences to sin. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. Okay, so he's supposed to take the elements of this uh, earth and manipulate them, exercise administrative oversight over them, uh, subdue it, exercise that dominion. All of that now is going to, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be pushback. Uh, it says, you know, one of the things you're going to do is work every day for your daily bread, your food. And he says, um, this creation, this garden that you're in, it's going to be a struggle now. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So work continues, but now you add this other layer. There's going to be pushback and revolt in the work that we're doing. Uh, in this case, if you think of the farmer, an agrarian kind of uh, picture there of Adam, there's going to be, as it says here, thorns, verse 18, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you. Now you're going to continue to work. Your whole life you're supposed to work, but you're going to have an obstacle thorns and thistles, and it's going to bring forth that as well as the wheat and the good stuff that's going to grow out of the ground and the fruit off the trees. You're going to eat of the, eat of the plants of the field, but you're going to have to sort through a lot of stuff you didn't before. By the sweat of your face, here's the hard part about work, verse 19, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and you are, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So the fall complicated work, but it does not remove the reality of the pre-fall virtue of work. So work is a gift. It's a gift from God, and it's a good thing. Uh, not only that, work is a godly thing. 
And I mean that in the most uh, fundamental definition of the word godly. It is something that God does. You got your Bible open there to Genesis 3. Scroll back up. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 2, 1 and 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. We had all of that in chapter 1. Uh, it's going to recapitulate and retell the story in a minute. But here it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, everything that God made. And on the seventh day, God finished, now underscore this, his work. Okay, now he's got work. He's tasking Adam and Eve to work. And it says, The seventh day, he finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his, there's the word again, all of his work that he had done. Now, again, we learn that this is the pattern of work and rest that is provided for us, not because God needed six days to create everything, but because he's trying to show us that uh, six-sevenths of your life should be involved in working, and he worked. That's a godly thing. And so if you're taking notes, number two, work is godly. Work is a gift, number one. Work is a godly thing, number two. And God was working before he got people working in the garden. John 5, verse 17. Uh, Jesus, right, the incarnate Son of God on earth in his earthly ministry in the incarnation says in verse 17, but he answered them, context by the way, um, were these people that were accusing him of healing this man on the Sabbath. And it says in verse 17, Jesus answered, My Father is working until now, and I am working. God the Father works. We know that from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And he says, I'm working. I work. He works. And they, of course, picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to kill him because he was making himself out to be equal with God. Jesus is a worker. right? Work is godly because God the Father is working. Jesus is working. Um, if you did get to that passage real quick, uh, go to John 4, real close. John chapter 4, verse 34. This is that scene where instead of eating, Jesus is sharing the gospel. That's his task, right? He is uh, out to seek and save the lost on his business card, so to speak. As he's an evangelist, he's seeing people brought to repentance, and he's sharing the gospel with this gal, and they're wondering why he's not eating. And he says this in verse 34, of John chapter 4. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So God has got work to do for me, Jesus says, and I just thrive on that. I'm ready to work through lunch is basically what he's saying here, uh, to do the work that God has set before me. Um, look at John 9 verse 4. There's an urgency about Jesus's work. He says in John 9, 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. So you've got under this heading here, work is godly. God the Father's working. Of course, the Spirit is working in chapter 1 of Genesis even, working, hovering over the face of the deep. He's uh, part of the uh, agency of God's creation. Um, and so much work he does in the Scripture but Christ comes on the scene and says, God the Father works, I work. He says, I love to work. It's my food, and I'm urgent about the work. I'm going to get as much work done as I can while I can do my work. So I'm saying these things, obviously, in light of COVID-19 and this shutdown, when so many of you are going through the experience of having more 
downtime, more leisure time, more family time. And I want to stop and say, before you get too cozy with the idea of, isn't it great that we're just you know, able to chill more and I get to do more puzzles and I'm, you know, getting to kind of learn to cook new things and I'm kind of hanging out more by the fireplace. And, you know, it's great that I'm having more time. I can sleep in and I have a schedule. I don't have to get out of my pajamas, whatever it is that you might be tempted to think, well, this is great. Matter of fact, if you think this is better, I want to say, stop, wait, work is a gift from God. It's a pre-fall gift. God is a worker. I want to be godly. I want to work because God works. Uh, Jesus comes on the scene. He's working. He says he loves the work that he's called to do. He says that he is fueled by it. He says it's urgent. He wants to get it done and get as much done as he can while he's still on this earth. In Exodus chapter 23, this is very helpful. Matter of fact, I want you to turn there. Exodus chapter 23. Now, the layer that we need to remember that is given as a sign for Israel much like circumcision for the males, something for everyone, including even the animals, the picture of the Sabbath, in particular, the religious observance of the assembling of the Jews to worship uh, in the tabernacle and later the temple was a covenant sign with Israel. So the Sabbath keeping as a religious ceremony came to end obviously in the New Testament in Christ, uh, that no day is more important than the other. You may value one. That's great. You'd be fully convinced in your own mind. But the bottom line is there's uh, a man who considers every day the same. And this is not about ceremonial law keeping anymore, any more than pork or the Aaronic priesthood or bringing a sacrifice on an altar or burning a candle in the temple or showbread on a table or uh, you know, having a Urim and the Thummim or the breastplate and the ephod, all those things are, are, are passe. The Bible says they're obsolete now. Uh, but the pattern of work and rest, that God chose the Sabbath day as a day that was to be also a day for rest because of the pattern of work and rest in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, the idea of that in Scripture here helps me get this third point clear in my mind as we move through this outline. Look at uh, Exodus 23, verse 12. It says, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Okay, now the idea of Sabbath, of course, means rest, but it was way more than that in Old Testament Israel as a sign and a covenant between the covenant people of God. Just like the Bible says, that, like circumcision, circumcision means nothing, Paul said to the, the Corinthians. Circumcision, uncircumcision means nothing right now. And so it is with the Sabbath. But the idea of work and rest, oh, that, that is all in vogue. And here is the underlying foundational point of the aspect, the practical aspect of working and resting. He says, you shall rest. That your ox and your donkey may have rest. Okay, these are animals. And that the son of your servant woman, even the, the maidservants, and the alien, now here's the point underlying this, may be refreshed. So the one-seventh of your week that God sets up, which by the way is the only non-astronomical unit of measure that we have in terms of chronological timekeeping. Did you know that? Um, everything else we can uh, we can pin to, you know, the the phases of the moon or the uh, phase of the sun. You know, whether it's the you know, rotation of the earth or the orbit of the earth around the sun. All these things you know mark out months and days and years. But the week is something that God established without any astronomical connection or anything that's 
physiological or anything that's mathematical that relates to something outside of itself. God designates a week because he knows how we're made and he establishes the seventh day week. And then he says, listen, you take that day to be refreshed. Why? Because that donkey's got to get up on the next day and that ox has to get up on the next day and the son of your maidservant has to get up on the next day and you got to go work the vineyards and you got to go work the orchards. That's the I mean, preceding verses there in Exodus 23. So I put it this way. Number three, if you're taking notes, uh, rest is for work. Okay. Now you see where I'm going. Rest is for work. When we rest, right, the whole point of rest is, and it's a great word there, it is to be refreshed. That's the picture of this word. Rest is to be refreshed. It is so that we can be refreshed so that we might work. Literally, the idea is to take a breath. It allows me to take a breath. What for? So I can get back to work. So many people think work is so that we can rest, right? All the, you know, adages of our culture, right? I'm working for the weekend. We call Wednesday hump day. You know, everyone's pushing toward retirement. Those are not biblical concepts, right? The biblical concepts are I am resting so that I can get back to work. So let's think about all that's going on now when we get ourselves in this COVID-19 shutdown. And if your life has gotten like so many people's lives in our church has gotten to the place where you're more lax, more relaxed, more restful, you've got more opportunities to be leisurely. Uh, all I'm saying is that's not the goal. I mean, the goal is not like, oh, this is great. And certainly when the government starts passing out money and giving loans to organizations and it's like uh, places I've been in the world where I've traveled and seen people underwritten, their leisure is underwritten by the government and it becomes a culture of rest. Um, we've missed the whole point of what rest is for. We don't work up through our week or our lives or our career so that we can rest. The whole point of resting is so we can get back to work. So rest is for work. Um, a passage I'd love you to look, look at, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Find that for me if you would. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, if you're flipping through a printed Bible. Um, the context here, and though there's one phrase that's questionable as to what is intended, but the context is that children, um, and here's at least the logical context, of the, children play. Children like to play. Children, that's what they do. Um, and fools, in this context, they want to. That's what they want to do. The folly of fools, they just all they want to do is play. Uh, and then it's, it's going to speak of royalty in this passage in terms of they could play. That could be what they do, right? They have money, they have power, they, have re they could relax, right? They've got the ability to, to have the money to not work. You know, it's like people thinking about the lottery. If I win the lottery, well, then I just well, I went by a yacht. I just tour the world. I, I wouldn't work. Um, look at this passage. Super helpful here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Drop down to verse number 15. It says, the toil of a fool wearies him. Right? The work. He doesn't like it. He's tired. Doesn't like it. For he does not know the way to the city. That's, that's the, you know, uh, ambiguous phrase, at least the people and commentators try to wrestle with that. I think it has that sense of they don't know how to get to work, right? They don't know what it is to do in the marketplace. They, they, they don't know the way to the city. 
There's lots of ways to take that. But the idea is, I think, in the context is the, the toil of the fool, he's wearied. It's like the proverb that says the man who's lazy, he's always making excuses about getting to work. Like there's a lion in the road. You know, I'm going to eat, be eaten by an animal. I, he's got lots of reasons not to get where he should go to get to work. Um, and it says the toil of the fool, they don't like it, right? The fool, like the child, just rather play. Well, the king and the king's children and the royal family, they could live that way. But look at this next line, verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, right? If he's going to play like a child or like the fool wants to, just doesn't want to work, right? And your princes feast in the morning, right? You don't feast in the morning, get up and eat. I mean, we obviously have breakfast. If you do have breakfast, hope you do. Uh, but the idea of the princes, they just want to get up because gonna, they're going to have a, a feast. We're going to eat. We're going to party. We're going we're gonna to play. Well, that's the land that the writer here, the, the preacher Solomon says, woe to that land. That's a bad situation when you're royalty, when they can play, uh, they act like children and that's all they want to do is play. Verse 17, but by contrast, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. Right? The, 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 the dad has distinguished himself in the uh, work that he has done. And your princes, right, the, the sons of nobility, right, they feast at the proper time. Right? Well, when's that? Well, when they're hungry, when they've worked, when they've done their work. They feast for strength and not for drunkenness. Not so that they can lean back with their stomachs bloated and feel good. That's just a great set of verses. Right? And even in verse number 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in. Right? You're not going to get any work done. Your, your house itself is going to be in shambles. And through insolence, uh, indolence rather, the house leaks. That idea is helpful for us as we think through what it means for us as um, people. To not be indolent, to not be idle, to not be inactive. That's the picture here. So through your idleness, things fall apart. Happy are you, O land, when your king, who could act like a child and be like the fool who is t wearied by his toil, um, they're not. They're going to work. And when they work, they get hungry. And when they get hungry, they feast at the proper time because they've worked up an appetite and they get their strength back. Not just so that they can be drunk, not so that they can be full, not so that they can be gluttonous. Uh, because you know what? Nothing gets done in a house or in a kingdom if you've got people like that. So rest is for work, you know, even eating. Eating is for strength, not for us gaining weight during this COVID-19 break, uh, not for comfort. Um, so don't love the breaks, I guess is what I'm saying. And I got a lot of passages here, so let's just jot a few of these down. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13, as we continue this third point, uh, it says, love not sleep, right? I mean, that's just, we, we say it all the time. I mean, I don't know if you say that to people you know, I just, ah, sleep, so good to sleep. Okay, it's a gift from God. The Bible talks about God giving us sleep, give sleep to his beloved. I get that. But he says, don't fall in love with that. Right? Don't love sleep. Don't live for sleep. Don't say, that's what I can't wait to do. Lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. You have plenty of bread. Even if you have plenty of bread. That's why the Ecclesiastes passage is so good. Even if you've got government funds coming. Even if you've got people serving you. Even if you've got a whole pantry full of food. Um, don't love sleep. Don't love leisure. Don't love that. Don't love it. Anticipate the need for it. Get involved in the refreshment that you need so that you can work. 
one more in this point, Proverbs 19.15, slothfulness, idleness, laziness, casts into a deep sleep, uh, but an idle person, it says, will suffer hunger. So we don't want to see the work that we do as something we tolerate or utilize for the sake of rest. We don't, we don't work for rest. We, we rest for work. That's the third point, rest for work. So work is a gift from God. Work is godly. We need to rest for work. And then let's just say it, man. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 6, um, this passage reminds us that um, number four, laziness is, is sin. Laziness is falling short of the template. I guess you could assemble that from everything we've already said. Um, look at this. This is go to the ant, Proverbs 6, 6. Oh, sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without a chief, no chief, without having any chief or officer or ruler, no manager, nobody slapping you know, the ruler down on, on the knuckles saying, get it done, get it done. Nobody with a whip saying, get it done. The ant goes, because God's designed and programmed that little ant, to prepare her bread in summer and gather her food in harvest. And then he looks to people who unfortunately don't have the sense of the ant and say, how long are you going to lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come upon you like a robber and want, desire that is not met, like an armed man. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, wrote a whole section. Well, he wrote a lot of stuff in his Christian directory, it's called. I got my copy right over there. Um, of course, I have an electronic copy, too, on, on Logos. But um, what a great forthright section he writes about sloth and idleness. And uh, he's got a lot to say about it. Matter of fact, you do a search, an electronic search on everything uh, Baxter said about either do a word search on sloth or idleness, you'll find a lot. And it's such a problem he saw as a Puritan because he recognized coming out of that Protestant Reformation, the idea of that work ethic that was understood to be the godly thing, as opposed to the early church. There was a period of time in the early centuries where they thought uh, this monastic movement, this ascetic movement, this is a movement where you went out in the desert, the desert fathers, and you contemplated God and you relaxed uh, in the sense that you were just meditating on spiritual things in your mind. And, you know, they even wrote about the, the fact that the people that had to do the manual labor and the work, well, that was, you know, for people that just aren't as blessed and as, as, as capable as us to sit here and just soak in God in the, in the desert, the desert fathers, we sometimes call them. The um, Protestant Reformation, the 16th century, was very helpful in, in reviving what really created Western civilization in so many ways, from Geneva and um, just in, in light of even the teachings of Martin Luther, reminding people that the work that we're called to do, as so many scriptural passages tell us, is a gift from God. It is our calling. As Luther said, whether you're preaching or whether you're washing dishes, whether you're in the kitchen, I have so many quotes on this, uh, or, or whether you're doing missionary work, it doesn't matter. The work that you're doing, whether you eat or drink, you do it all for the glory of God. Even if you're washing up the dish and the, and the cup, you do that for the glory of God, and you do that as an act of service and worship to God. And to neglect the work, even the manual labor, is to miss out on the value God places on that. And to say, I don't want to do any of that, the sluggard or the lazy person, um, the Bible says that just, that's a sinful thing. Richard Baxter, anyway, in that section, he has got a section on how to deal with it, directions against idleness and sloth. He says, the first help against sloth, he says, 
laziness, is to be well acquainted with the greatness of the sin. Wow. Is that good? Think about that. The first help against sloth is to be well acquainted with the greatness of the sin. For no wonder it be committed by them that think it is small. It's no wonder that people commit it and they get engaged in a lazy lifestyle because they don't think it's a big sin. Some don't think it's a sin at all. And yet he goes on to say in the next paragraph, God himself reckons it a heinous sin. Wow. Um, Good for us to think through what does the Bible say about sloth, idleness, and laziness. Um, Anyway, so much we could say about that. Let me just give you one more passage in this before I um, move on. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. Just read a little bit of it here. The sign of things undone is a sign of a lazy person, a lazy life. I passed by the field of the sluggard, the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw it, and I considered. I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. There's that phrase again from Proverbs 6, and the idea is you can see Things left undone is evidence of a slothful heart. And as Baxter would remind us, as scripture tells us, um, talk about falling short. That's a heinous falling short of God's plan. Going all the way back to the garden. Tend it, oversee it, engage in it, work it, uh, exercise dominion over it. You got work to do that God has assigned to you. And if you don't know what that is, we got to find it. I know we're in the middle of this shutdown. But that, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but the idea of recognizing laziness as sin, very important. Number five, and I think this we've got a whole culture engaged in this, uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 19, as long as we're in Proverbs. It says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits, worthless pursuits, will have plenty of poverty. One more. The next verse, verse 20, a faithful man will abound in blessing, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Um, Let me put this one this way. Easy money, whatever the source or means might be, easy money is problematic. Let me just say it that. I don't want to overstate it, but easy money is always problematic. Easy money is problematic. Um, Number one, as Proverbs 18, 19 says, it rarely works. If you follow worthless pursuits, and that's the picture in context of someone trying to get rich and get rich easy and quick. And there's so many organizations, so many pursuits, so many Facebook groups, so many things that are going to try and promise you, you know, wealth, the maximal wealth with minimal work. The Bible just condemns that. That's easy, what we call easy money. And that easy money, I could put that in quotes, that easy money is always problematic in Scripture, in part because God opposes the greed that drives that. People that don't see the virtue and the value in the work itself, they want easy money. The Bible says there's a problem. God is going to punish them. A faithful man will abound in blessing, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Why? Because as 1 Timothy 6 says, what's driving that is usually a greed of money. And as it says in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and elsewhere, and Baxter tries to underscore, it's because there is an underlying desire for slothfulness and laziness. So easy money is problematic. People who end up getting easy money, and there are plenty, right? Whether it's the lottery winners or whether it's, uh, you know, someone who just born with a silver spoon in their mouth or whether it's someone who happens to 
you know, get into some residual income situation with, you know, a best-selling book or, a, you know, whatever it might be. They, they patent something and they get rich off of it. People who get that easy money rarely steward it well. And I don't mean just in terms of giving to God's work or anything. I'm just talking about they, they rarely manage it well. They rarely do well with that windfall. Uh, and let me show you that from Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13 verses, uh, let's just verse 11. Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily. You got it easy. Easy money came quick. The windfall will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little, right, it will increase. So it's increased by the one who is little by little, just making a little bit more than he spends and going at it and seeing the value of work, as we see in the rest of Scripture, seeing the calling of good work and hard work and faithful work and disciplined work and well-ordered work, um, they seem to have what they need. They have more than they need. They usually have an abundance. They're blessed. But the people that want to get rich quick, usually driven by greed, when they actually do hit the jackpot, so to speak, in whatever they're doing, or literally, um, rarely are they good stewards of it. It usually dwindles. And I, I've seen it, the biographies of these uh, lottery winners, if you've seen it. Of course, I, you should never play the lottery. It's a different sermon. Um, different sermon. Don't get me into that. We're already well into this sermon now. Uh, I don't have time for that. But the idea of um, these people getting all this money, rarely does that end well for them. I don't know. We can look that up on your own. Number six, uh, God works in the workers. Those who are committed and willing to work, God works within them. That's my sixth point. God works in the workers. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says this about his own life. Autobiographically, he says, For this I toil, there's a good word, hard work, not even a normal word for work. It's a stronger word. I mean, this is what I toil. That's why it's a good translation to use a different word than just work. For this I work. No, for this I toil. And then there are next word here. I often quote it because there's a... English equivalent, as we transliterate that into English, he says, agonizomai, struggling um, in agony, ag agonizomai, struggling with all his energy. Speaking of Christ here, that's the subject in verse 19, the antecedent to his. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's just a great line, right? He says, I toil and I struggle. And I do that with the energy and the fuel that God powerfully works within me. Um, how about this one? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But, verse 10, I am, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. God is just gracious in giving me this position of apostleship, Paul says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. God put favor on me and it wasn't for nothing. God saw me produce. Look at this. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder than any of the other apostles. I worked harder. Wow, what a testimony, right, of Paul being gutsy and willing enough, objective enough to say, I worked harder than all the rest of the apostles. Though, he says, wasn't me, just wasn't, wasn't I, but the grace of God that was within me, God's favor. So the idea of God working within us as it says in Philippians, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. The workers, God works within the workers. You put your feet up, you feast for pleasure and not for strength. You want to, you know, do the things that just make your life easy. You want easy money. 
God's not much in stepping up in those situations. God, though, works within the workers. We see it everywhere, and that's why Paul speaks in those terms when he preaches to people. His exhortation, he says, you got to work. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, which he's already told us. doesn't mean you're a missionary and a pastor necessarily. It just means you're doing things for the glory of God, whether you're eating or you're drinking. Always about in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Or how about this extended passage in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, as he speaks to the importance of God working within us and us working hard. And he says, don't be lazy. I command you, he says. Now we command you, brothers. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. There's the word. They're not really working. Keep away from them. And that's a strong thing, right? Think about that. A lot of people, you don't want to say, I'm going to not hang out with you. I don't want to do lunch with you. It says for laziness, for idleness, you should do that, which is even a symptom of the heart problem of laziness. He says, and not accord with the tradition you've received from us. Not in accord with that, because he was just the difference. He says, for he was so different than that. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right. We could have passed the plate. But as an apostle and a missionary, he says, we didn't. But we want to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But we hear that some among you, verse 11, are walking in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Right? When you're not working, you're doing something else. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. Stop being a busybody, dabbling in everybody's business, and to earn their own living. Well, that's a big section to, to explore, as I'll have you do a little bit in our discussion questions. Second Thess 3, 6 through 12, Paul's exhortation, knowing that God works within the workers, he tells people to get to work and don't be lazy. Okay, well, what do we do when we can't work, right? A lot of us right now, a lot of you can't work, right? You've been furloughed in some way. Well, I would say this, and we've already dealt with this, but get refreshed, right? You've probably had plenty of time for that, right? To get refreshed, but get refreshed. And then I would say, here's some practical suggestions based on Proverbs 24. We've already looked at this passage talking about going by the field of the lazy person, vineyard, I'm messed up, th thorns and thistles, and the ground's got nettles and the stone wall's broken down. I would say this, you got to work at home. I mean, there's, let me say this, even if you don't have stuff you're working from home, work on your home. It's not a bad thing. That's, the, that's a biblical concept here. Proverbs 31, this woman who's praised, it says she does not eat the bread of idleness. Right? She's busy working. She perceives that her merchandise, her activity is profitable. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. She stays up late. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. Right? She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out and gives to the needy. Why? Because little by little, the increase in her life is the work produces and She's not out to get rich quick. She's not afraid of snow for her household because her household is clothed in scarlet. They got great clothes. She makes her bed coverings for herself, her clothing is in fine purple, fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. He sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. 
So I would say this, you got some time off if you do, make sure you're refreshed, that's great. Make a puzzle, watch a movie, right? Exercise, do whatever, get refreshed. Then get to work. If your garage needs cleaning, clean it out. If something needs painting, paint it. If something needs fixing, fix it. Then I would say this, pray about your work. You're gonna get back to work soon. I, I trust we're all gonna get back to work soon. Even if you're looking for a new job because you got you know, terminated or laid off, uh, pray. Proverbs 16, three, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Put your prayer life out there and say, God, I want you to bless my work. I'm gonna to go to work. One of the things I'm gonna do is right now, I'm gonna work at praying about my work. And then I would say plan about your work. Plan for your work. Proverbs 21.5, Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance. The plans of the diligent lead to abundance. But everyone is hasty only comes to poverty. So we're not winging it. You're not improvising. Some of you probably at your jobs did a lot more improvising than you should have. Time now. If you got some downtime, sit down at the kitchen table and start working a plan for your work. Uh, work at praying for your work and work at planning for your work. And then I would say this, Proverbs 20.18 I'll give you two verses on this one. Proverbs 20:18. Plans are established by counsel and by wise guidance, you ought to wage war. Right? In other words, you ought to get some input. Proverbs 15:22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. I would say this: there's lots of things. I mean, if you know what your job is, unless you're completely gonna be out of your field and looking for a new job, but if you know what you're gonna go back to, even the general industry of what you're going back to. Right now, if you got extra time, right? Maybe um, it's not the extra hobby or the extra, you know, whatever, walk in the park. Maybe you say, it's time for me to get trained for work. Um, I need counselors, I need advisors, Proverbs 2018. I need counselors, I need people to help me wage war. Uh, one of the things, not that I have a lot of extra time in this downtime, but uh, my schedule is certainly different. And one of the things I've tried to add during this period of time is training. I mean, I feel like things like Logos, I'm, I work in this program every single day, hours a day. And I thought, I bet I haven't mastered everything in this. So I've even paid for a subscription to get trained every day in going to the levels deeper to ex be a, try to be an expert at the things that I use, the tools I use in work. Uh, man, it, it, the best nine bucks a month I've spent, uh, probably I think it's nine bucks, is to take the ads out of YouTube. Uh, this is weird, not just to watch uh, you know cat videos or whatever, but uh, I certainly don't watch those but uh, to get trained on things. I mean, even you're gonna work in your house. There's so many things, I mean, you, YouTube, I know this won't be an eternal statement, but right now, what a great place to get trained in almost anything. Uh, and there are aspects of your work that you're gonna go back to. I mean, I've started working in programs even for things I've done. You've noticed my evening Bible studies, if you watched stuff like drawing on the screens and going, getting new programs that'll help do that, getting trained in those, opening up YouTube and, you know, without all the ads, which I appreciate, it's worth the, the money for me to just be able to dive into mastering programs and mastering things that I do in my work that hopefully six months from now are going to pay off because my schedule changed during this period and maybe I've got some, you know, some slots to put in training. So get refreshed, sure. Work on your home, not only from home. If you are working from home and you got extra time, work on your home. Pray about your work, plan for your work, get trained for your work. And by the way, when you can work, this is the last one. You're, you're catching all these points. Number five was easy money's problematic. Number six, God works in the workers. Number seven, when you can't work, dot, dot, dot. And we had like, get refreshed, work on your home, pray about your work, 
plan about your work, get trained, five subpoints there. And then lastly, number eight, got three subpoints under this one. When you can work, ellipsis. When you can work, dot, dot, dot. Okay? Three things. A, work heartily. Okay? Work hard. When you get back to work, be the best worker in that job. Be the best worker you can be. Um, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I don't know. You're going back. You're going to work for a boss. You're going to work for shareholders. You're going to work for whoever you're going to work for. Pretend those shareholders or those managers, or those bosses, those business owners, pretend in your mind, because in one sense it's true, that that's Christ. Right? If you knew that you were doing something, making widgets, so to speak, and you're going to do that for Christ, how would you do that? I mean, you would give your whole, your whole life to it, your heart to it. Which, by the way, it's an interesting word here in Colossians 3.23. It says, do your work heartily. Well, the Greek word for heart is cardia, and you'd think the word cardia is here, but it's not the word cardia. It's the word for soul. It, basically, do your work solely with your soul. Do your work all the way down to your immaterial part of who you are. Put your whole heart, your whole life into this. Uh, work heartily, literally. Work with your soul. Uh, letter B, work respectfully. Colossians 3.22, that's the preceding verse. I just quoted Colossians 3.23. Here's Colossians 3.22. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. So I want you to be the best worker you can be as you respond to your bosses and your managers. Um, you ought to be respectful. You ought to be submissive. You ought to be giving your all to them. Let me give you another verse here that's very important. Jot this one down. If you can be quick, turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as a bondservant, as a slave, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. Wow. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You're a Christian. I want you to be the best worker in your company. Right? Those who have believing masters, maybe you work and you got a Christian as a boss, maybe you work for the church. It says those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers, right? We're just dudes here, we're bros, we're, you know, this is summer camp, we're just count counsel, camp counselors together. It's not the way you should view it. Rather, serve them all the better, all the more, since those who benefit by your good service are believers and beloved. <laughs> That's a, a great concept. So letter B, work respectfully. And then lastly here, letter C, when you get back to work, work honestly. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, Hey, bond servants, you, be, you are to be submissive to your masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, um, not pilfering, not stealing, not cutting corners, but showing all good faith, doing it sincerely, doing it honestly, so that in everything... You as bondservants may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Um, let's work honestly. Let's work respectfully. Let's work heartily. Some of you are already engaged in work. You haven't stopped. So all of this is current, present tense. Some of you are yet to get back to work or to work at full tilt. I'm just trying to counter the temptation we have. And it may be well-meaning because we kind of picture the Norman Rockwell. Oh, we're having more family time. And maybe your marriage is good if you're in a family and your kids are doing well. And it's like, oh, this is great. Just more downtime. Uh, and you want to cut your life back. And you're seeing like, this is the better norm. This is the new normal for you. I just exhort you 
That is not the picture you're going to get from Scripture. We do not strive toward a leisurely life, right? A quiet life does not mean that it's not an active life. Quiet life meant that we're not creating problems in society that we shouldn't create. I mean, I could get into all of that to show you that those verses are so often misquoted. The idea of living a quiet life doesn't mean that we're relaxing and chilling out and, and having more nights at home. Uh, I can't wait for this campus to fire up again uh, because that is what we should be doing. And all the more as we see the day approaching, which is just one aspect. When you're busy throwing kids into the van to go to soccer practice and you got kids coming to Awana and you're busy about leading your small group and you're traveling over here to this guy's house to do this one-on-one partners program, this disciple, that's just how it should be. You should go to bed tired every night. Now, some of you, I know you're going to accuse me in this sermon of, you know, going overboard. I just got to tell you, this is not, um, I'm trying to be as honest and forthright about what the scripture teaches as I can. If you're going to disagree with these things, well, we got to have a good biblical argument for it, but you can't quote a couple verses about living a quiet life and think that you've won the argument here. I really need you make the most of this time, uh, be refreshed, but in your refreshment, there's a lot of work to prepare to do to get back to a busy active life, uh, to be engaged in those things, and to put our whole heart into it. And so that time's coming. So hopefully this will be a good discussion for us in our small groups. I know it was a rather lengthy sermon, uh, but I pray it will be profitable. Let me pray for you. God, help us through this time uh, to deal with this topic of work and to understand it well from your perspective. And I know many people have uncertain work situations. Some don't have jobs and some are going back to jobs. They're not sure what they'll look like. Some are looking for work, um, and some are even working hard right now, maybe harder than before. And I pray that all of those different kinds of people would have some takeaway from this sermon that would be helpful for them as they continue to see what a gift it is for us to work as hard as it is and with the thorns and thistles in the ground and all the things we have to deal with in our work as they raise that you know thorny opposition to our work, which one day will be removed, and we're grateful for that in the kingdom. But right now, God, help us to do our best to power through that, to see the good in it, and uh, really to roll up our sleeves and just not just have that enthusiasm, that anticipation of getting back to doing the things you've called us to do, to do our work heartily, whatever that work may be. In Jesus' name, amen.